This is why Jesus came to earth, lived righteously on our behalf, died for our dysfunction, then rose again conquering sin and death. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. So we're gonna begin back in chapter one. And as we open up this text today, music has the power to inspire. It has been said that music can move you emotionally, it can sometimes motivate you to action, and it can sometimes greatly annoy you. If you're a mom and you have young children, you certainly know that some music can be greatly annoying. All I have to say is the phrase baby shark, and you know exactly what I'm talking, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're welcome, don't look it up. Do not Google that later, okay? Music, some have said, has the power to change the world. And certainly there have been some songs in history that have been uh, saying at just the right time to kind of accompany a revolution. Certainly certain songs in the 1960s helped shape and frame the views that people had and have kind of themselves become anthems of revolution. Now, we've been studying the life of David through our survey of First and Second Samuel. And today we come to a song that literally changed the relationship between David, the ruddy young shepherd boy who had taken down the giant, and King Saul, who began to, in this chapter, be overcome with a jealous rage against David. And so as we pick up our story here in 1 Samuel 18, it seems as though, as one person said, Goliath's fall shook more than just the ground. What we're going to see today is, is more than just jealousy, though, and how jealousy can destroy relationships. We will see that. But we're going to see a bitter contention between what you could call the vainglory of someone who is only seeking their own renown and the glory of one who puts his enemies at his feet and whose name alone is esteemed above every other name. And so here's how we're going to break this chapter down. If you're taking notes this morning or you have your phone, take a picture of this. Or if you're on the Bible app, even better, you can follow along. Here's the outline. We're going to see verses 1 through 9, a divisive song. The ladies didn't mean it, but it's going to come out very, very divisively. Secondly, we're going to see a destructive spirit in verses 10 through 19, and how this spirit will continue to visit Saul throughout our study. And then we're going to see in verses 20 through 30 a deceptive snare, that Saul is trying to trick David uh, into marriage so that he can have him killed. So let's, with that as our template for today, let's look at the first section, a divisive song. You'll look back at verse 1 with me, and verses 1 through 4, we're really going to dive in next week, but let's just at least look through it. You'll note um, that we see that as soon as uh, he's finished speaking to Saul, verse 1, the soul of Jonathan was now knit to the soul of David. So this is taking place immediately after chapter 17, where David defeats the giant Philistine Goliath. If you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to that sermon. We ruined the story of David and Goliath, didn't we? But we ruined it in a good way, amen? So we see that this is right after that moment, and immediately Jonathan's soul is knit to David's soul. And verse 2 explains that the king 
kind of put an end to what we called the Uber shepherd position. Remember, David was kind of a shepherd for hire. He was like an Uber driver, but a shepherd. And so he'd go back and forth from his house, watching his dad's sheep, back to the king's palace to play the lyre, and then he'd go back and forth bivocationally. And so this little side hustle, uh, the king is shutting down. The king is saying, no, you're now in my, my palace from here on out. Uh, and so after defeating Goliath, David's now full-time at the palace, and Saul's son, Jonathan, makes here in verses 3 and 4 a covenant with David. And it says he does this because he loved him, note verse 3, as his own soul. Very interesting phrase. We'll look at that next week as we unpack chapter 20. But he says he loves him as his own soul. Now this Jonathan, let's not forget, he is the heir of the throne. He is the prince, but he's also known as the crown prince. So he's the heir apparent to the throne of Saul. But notice with me in these verses that he's quick to put David in preference to himself. Notice that he recognizes that David is the true heir. So he's willing to put himself in the background, strip himself of his robe, and give even his armor, his weaponry to David. We'll really see that next week and where we fit into that part of the story and where Christ fits in. But look at verse 5. It says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now listen, this is an incredible promotion. David's going from the part-time guitar player to the commander of the army. Okay, this is a huge promotion. Now, there can definitely be a case to be made that worship leaders are kind of the ones leading the army, and I like that. Um, some people have kind of jumped in and applied it that way. But David essentially has proven successful in every campaign that he was given. And he was so faithful in it that Saul now elevates him over the entire army. Just think about this. David, the little red-headed shepherd boy, who is the musician, the cheese sandwich delivery boy, he is the one who is now David the general. That's huge. David Gusick points this out. He says, this was not because David was a yes man, people pleaser, seek offense kind of man. David did not seek this popularity and did not depend on any of those carnal tools to gain it. David became popular because he was a man after God's own heart. And people could see the love, the wisdom, and the peace of God in him. Now just make a little side note here. When God is the one who's raising you up versus you trying to raise yourself up, you don't have to try to promote yourself. When God raises you up, there's generally going to be an, a, a group of people who affirm that God is with you. They're going to say, yes, we, we see this call of God on your life. We see that you are gifted. And, and they're going to say, as those who are already serving around you, they're going to say, yeah, we agree with this desire of yours to be in ministry or to, or to be raised up. And I'm always confused by people who, who seek to raise themselves up in ministry without any affirmation from leaders or people around them. That behavior is carnal and God's not in it. And so David was raised up by God even in the sight of Saul. So now we come to this divisive song in verse 6. Notice with me, we read it a minute ago, but look at verse 6. It says, as they were coming home from the battle, David returned from striking down the Philistine. It says, the women came out of all the cities of Israel. And they were singing and they were dancing. And they came to, came to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Now, listen up. When women come out of a city to sing about you when they're dancing, you are famous, okay? 
When they do that in every city, you are more than famous, you are infamous. <laughs> Anyone know that reference that? You are infamous. Okay, no. Um, 80s movie. There are four references in this chapter, four references to David's success. There are three affirmations in this chapter that God is with David. And there are six uses of the verb to love with David as the object, the direct object of that love. And so everyone in this chapter, everyone in chapter 18 is enamored by David. They love David. Jonathan, Michal, Israel, Judah. But there's one who's less than impressed. And all of this goes down when the women begin singing their top 40 hit in verse 7. It says, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And here's their song. Here's the lyrics of the song. Church, it's important we pay attention to lyrics, isn't it? Right? Especially worship lyrics. So here's their lyric. They said this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Ooh, a little bit of a rub there. Saul is great, but David, he's much greater. We're comparing the two. Notice, though, that David wasn't moved by this song. David doesn't even notice it. But Saul, oh, he's infuriated by it. Why? Because they're attributing more praise to David than to me. Proverbs 27, 21, jot this verse down. Please don't miss this verse. says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. In other words, ouch, you can put silver in a crucible to refine it and you can put gold in a hot furnace to draw out the impurities. But Solomon says, the best way to test a person is to applaud them. That's the best way to see where their heart is at. John Flavel said this, it's a dangerous crisis when a proud heart meets with flattering lips. Wow. Now, I've experienced this, and I can say uh, that whenever I'm applauded, it's always a test. It is always a struggle when someone comes up at the end of a good teaching and they go, good sermon, pastor, okay? Uh, some of you have done this, and, and this, is, this is the test, right? What's the pastor going to say? Good sermon, pastor. Uh, and so um, I'm always careful. I'm, uh, if you've said that to me, I usually, my, I'm very careful to say praise God, right? Because he gets the praise. Here's why. Here's the crazy thing. Uh, it's the word of God, not the word of me that I'm preaching, right? It's God's word that I'm preaching. It's God's spirit who's given me the, the ability to speak, it's God's calling upon my life to herald the gospel. It's God's favor and gifting that would even allow me to speak with clarity and authority. Some of you know what I'm like in person. It's amazing that it's God who can do that. It's God's people who are the ones being edified and equipped, and it's God's glory that's at stake. So why would I ever get my hands on it and go, you know what, I'm glad you mentioned that. It took me a long time to become this good. <laughs> are you kidding me? In a split second, God can, can confuse my speech, God can, can mute my mouth, and God can take that gift away. I in no way am here to, to hear good sermon, pastor. So some of you I've challenged. You say, good sermon. I go, what was good? <laughs> what was good about it? I'd rather hear, that was awful, but God is good. God is good. Uh, so listen, if you want to test a man or woman, give them praise. Or for our purposes in this text... Test someone by praising someone else near them. <laughs> so applaud someone next to them. Right? So verse 9 tells us that Saul eyed David from that day on. Now this wasn't an eye of favor. This was an eye of jealous, secret hatred. 
Brooks says this, it is a sign that the spirit of God has departed from men if they be continually envious and suspicious of those about them and cannot endure to hear anyone praised but themselves. A lot of times people come up to a husband, hey, just so you know, like your family is awesome. Those kids are great, right? And the wife is sitting there going, um, yeah, who, who are you talking about, right? And, and so it's easy for us to test where we're at when someone near us receives the praise. Now let's see what happens in our next section. This song incites jealousy, and now we come to the second section, a destructive spirit. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 uh, tells us, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now, if I can have your attention, the first time I read through this, I thought, wait, hold on, David, what are you doing, man? <laughs> Why would you stick around? It says in verse uh, 11 that this spear incident happened twice, two times. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I've worked for some pretty bad bosses in my day. But I can say with confidence, none of my employers have ever chucked a spear at me to make me a human shish kebab. That has never happened. Why on earth would David stay here? What is he thinking? Isn't it apparent that this guy wants to kill you? Well, remember, from chapter 16, David knows in his initial employment that Saul is a tormented man. So he knows that. He was hired to play the liar whenever Saul was experiencing this tormenting spirit. And apparently his condition, Saul's condition, has become a daily recurrence. So David wasn't necessarily equating this action of Saul in a personal way. He was seeing this action and just thinking, wow, Saul's having one of his bad days. He's getting angry at everybody. He's throwing the spear at me uh, who they're writing songs about. Wow. And so Saul knows in this moment his glory is diminishing and, and David's is increasing. And this fear of David is causing him to now come up with a plan. Now we mentioned it last week when it says from God, the harmful spirit from God. We mentioned this last week. Uh, uh, several weeks ago, uh, that sometimes the scripture will connect that God allows it to its sent from God. Uh, but essentially you need to understand that Saul is tormented in this moment and he's thinking this. He's thinking, I can't personally end his life, but I can send him out in battle so our enemies can do the job for us or for me. So look at verse 13. It says, Saul removed him from his presence and he made him a commander of a thousand. And David went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. Again, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he didn't applaud that. He didn't get grateful for that. He stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So notice with me that Saul's jealousy of David leads him to begin to scheme against him. This destructive spirit is leading him in his jealous rage uh, to come up with a plan. Plan A did not take a lot of strategy. I'm just going to, uh, what do we do? Uh, give me something to throw. Here's a spear. I'm going to pin him to the wall. That was plan A. Plan A didn't work. David's spry. Okay, he's, he's good with sheep. He's taken down a bear. He's taken down a lion. He's taken down Goliath. He's, he's you know, he's maybe spry. He's a little guy. So he's kind of, you know, he sees the spear. Boom. You know, did one of these little, 
making a, you know, juke move. So, okay, man, plan, did, plan A didn't work. I need more spears. No. So plan B. So plan B is either I'm going to send David out to war and hope that he's killed in battle. Or if David loses a battle but doesn't die, well, then no one's going to sing about him anymore because it's kind of like, how do we strum up the guitar on that one? Like uh, David lost again, right? So, uh, so no one's going to sing about him anymore. I'll be the, the lyrical choral content now again. And so his plan uh, is to send him out. But it doesn't work, does it? Plan B also fails because David continues to have success. So now his plan gets more complicated. Plan C is either to entice David to marry his daughter, and thus this gives Saul leverage to kind of push David out into more battles, like marry my daughter and go out and fight more. Or it's a ploy to marry his daughter or offer his daughter, and then at the last second, to do a bait and switch and humiliate David by giving her to someone else. And that's what he ends up doing. We read that Mirab, Saul's oldest daughter, is promised to David. But remember, from last week, she was already promised to David. She was promised to whoever uh, felled the giant. And, and David did that. But now, I guess there's more strings attached. Uh, and Saul hasn't kept his word. So instead, he invites David to marry her if he'll be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. But notice how David responds in verse 18. It says, David said to Saul, well, who am I? Who are my relatives? Who is my father's clan in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? I'm nobody. Note with me the great humility with which David responds. David did not say, well, yeah, I mean, of course you're asking me. I'm the one they've written the songs about. We won't recall the lyrics or anything. But, you know, someone's, someone's killed their thousands. <laughs> but I've killed tens of thousands. So, of course, I should be the obvious choice for marriage. No. David says, who am I? He still has that humility and that, that idea of who he is in light of the king. We'll see that attitude of humility and meekness continue through our study. But... Note with me that he invites David to marry her if he'll be valiant and eventually humiliates David. So we're told in verse 19, just at the time when he was going to marry her, Saul does a bait and switch and she, his oldest daughter, is given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now all of these schemes are flowing out of a destructive heart of Saul. You can't blame it on the spirit. The spirit may have kind of maybe... uh, provoked him, but this is all flowing out of a destructive heart. He can't say, the devil made me do it. It's the devil. It's that angry spirit. It's the jealous spirit. It's the demon of chocolate, right? You can't blame it on the devil. And even though he's being tormented, he's responsible for how he's treating this young man that he's insatiably jealous of. Now, as we're on this topic, I want to make sure we understand that there's a difference between jealousy and envy, okay? There is a big difference. And sometimes it can be confusing, which is which. So um, I found this quote helpful this week. This is by Collins. He says this, there is a distinction between jealousy and envy. To envy is to want something which belongs to another person. Remember, Paul brought this up in Romans. He he talked about coveting. And and the scripture in the um, old covenant says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife or his servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In contrast, that's envy. In contrast, jealousy is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. He goes on to say this. Although jealousy can apply to our jobs, uh, our possessions, 
or our reputations, the word jealousy more often refers to anxiety which comes when we're afraid that the affections of a loved one might be lost to a rival. We fear that our mates or perhaps our children will be lured away by some other person who when compared to us seems to be more attractive, capable, and successful. See, that's what Saul is afraid of. He's not envious of David. He's jealous that David is going to lure away the hearts of the people and that he's now experiencing the favor of God even as Saul is becoming more and more void of God's blessing. And where does this stem from? Where does jealousy stem from? Church, jealousy stems from the worst idol of all, the love of self. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, self-love is no doubt the usual foundation of human jealousy. And it's the fear lest another should by any means supplant us. Probably after some time, Saul eventually hears that Merib's younger sister, Michal, is in love with David. So that leads him to adopt plan D. And so let's look at a deceptive snare. Now, as I was preparing this this week, I was like, all right, I got to pronounce these names right. And so I was going to say her name Michael or Michelle or Mitchell. Uh, and none of those are correct. So I was looking this up, and the Hebrew um, actual way to communicate or pronounce her word is Michal. You got to really get guttural in that ka. So can we practice this? Michal. You guys try it. All right, don't spit on each other, but <laughs> Michal. Yeah, it's real guttural. Okay. Someone's like, it's Michael. Okay, fine. So look at verse 20. He's now going a little bit deeper because he finds out, oh, there's, there's finally fortune on my side. Plan D, let's try it out. Look at verse 20. Saul's daughter, I'm just going to call her Saul's daughter. How's that? She loved David. And they told Saul and the thing pleased him. Ah, here we go. Now my plan will work. So verse 21, here's his plan. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now we'll find out the character of this gal later in our study. And you'll see that that may be why he says she'll be a snare to him. He's not giving her with joy. He's like, I'm giving her with joy because I know she's going to be a difficult wife to deal with. And so it says, therefore, Saul said to David a second time, okay, now you shall be my son-in-law. Notice that we don't see any complaint here. David's not saying, hey, yeah, okay, I already know your, your tactics. This has happened before. We'll see it when, we'll believe it when we see it. We don't hear anything from David, but Saul commands his servants to go up to David in private. And again, David's response uh, is in verse 23. Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and I have no reputation? Wow. Same response here that David had with the offer of marrying the firstborn. His attitude is, I don't deserve this. I have no reputation. That's not true. The reality was that he had a bigger reputation than Saul the king. And he's already been promised a wife publicly before he defeated Goliath. And then he was promised her literally and then that was snatched away. And I think it's interesting, whenever someone's demanding what they deserve, I deserve this. And they lament that my reputation is not what it could be. you got to beware. David continues to make himself a man of no reputation. So look what happens next. It says in verse 24, the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Here's how David responded. And then Saul said, okay, cool, perfect. So here's what I want you to say. He says, the king desires no dowry, no bride price, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. 
So notice with me that Saul waives the normal bride price in favor of a very gruesome suggestion. He's asking for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. But here's what he's thinking. He's thinking, all right, David will agree to this. And he'll go out and he'll fight at least against a hundred Philistines. Now, knowing the law of averages, it's only going to be a certain point until David meets his match. He's surrounded by enough men, he's going to be killed. So he's not saying, I literally want this as a gift, because that's disgusting. He's saying, what I want is, I want to put David in a spot where he's going to contend and fight and fight, and eventually with enough men, a hundred men, he's going to be taken out. Um, And so he's thinking, there's no way. Now, does David go along with this proposal to kill 100 men? That's a tall order. And then to bring back the foreskins, that's just disgusting. Now, some of you who are newly married, you thought that engagement ring was expensive when you went and bought it at Zales, right? Uh, Imagine your future father-in-law says, no, for my daughter, uh, you're going to need to kill 100 men (laughs) to be married to my daughter. In fact, here's my gun collection, right? Um, What is David going to do? This is impossible, essentially. But notice verse 26. It says, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David. David's thinking, okay, he's making me earn it. All right. This is not just a give me. I've got to go for it. I've got to earn it. And I'm going to be the king's son-in-law. Notice that it says, before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. Now, it doesn't tell us that the men killed them. But it tells us that he had his men with him. But notice with me that he didn't just kill 100. He killed 200. Wow. This is incredible. Not only did all of Saul's plans, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, they all failed. But David now doubles what was required of him. So notice with me in verse 27, Saul gave him his daughter for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David... And that Saul's daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Wow. Notice with me that phrase uh, in verse 29 that he was more afraid of David. Okay, this is not a uh, kind of a reverent respect, that type of fear. This is a deep and abiding disgust, hatred, and revulsion type of fear. I'm afraid of that and I'm disgusted by it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But now he's David's father-in-law and he sees that his daughter loves David. And most importantly, he sees for sure that the Lord is not with Saul anymore. But now God is, is sincerely with David. So all of Saul's human wisdom, all of his human ingenuity has backfired. And then we come to verse 30. Perhaps the theme of the entire chapter and the theme of this sermon, verse 30, says, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that, notice with me, his name, David's name, was highly esteemed. David had more success than Saul to the extent that his name, David's name, not the king's name, was highly esteemed. Now, um, often this chapter is taught from the perspective of David. And I read sermon notes where pastors, this week read a few, where pastors would encourage their flock to be like David here. And what they mean by that is, hey, have a good heart when you're with a bad employer. So so that would be the idea that that if you have a bad boss, you need to respect that bad boss uh, when someone starts throwing spears at you. And, And we've said this before, that's not incorrect It's just incomplete. 
So I'm not here to say that's a false view of reading this. Um, we could read this passage certainly as if we're David and be encouraged to respect our elders and stay faithful to our father-in-laws even when they're mean and when they promise things they don't come through on. Like we, could, we could do that. We could apply it that way. And maybe someone's really mad at you and maybe they don't throw a spear at you, but they've thrown jabs at you and thrown in, hurled insults at you. We could apply it that way, sure. But is that what's happening here? Or is there more going on? You see, church, I don't think we resemble David here. I think we more closely resemble Saul. So before we dive into that, let's apply this chapter to our lives in two specific ways. And then we'll deep dive into these ideas in community group this week. Okay, so if you're taking note, jot these two things down. We're going to apply this this week in community groups. And I want to just camp out on this for a minute. If you go to lunch later with another couple or with your spouse, with your family, talk through some of these things. So here we go. First one, to apply this, number one, in the end, jealousy is ultimately destroying the one who's jealous. We're going to see Saul's downfall continually fleshed out as we read through the rest of 1 Samuel. And as we do, keep in mind how fascinating it is that the one who's jealous is the, almost always the one who ends up uh, being destroyed. It's rarely the person that they're jealous of who comes into misfortune. Uh, D.L. Moody tells the story of an eagle. And I love this story, I just want to read it to you. He says, there's a fable of an eagle which could outfly another, and the other didn't like it. The latter saw an archer sportsman one day and said to him, I wish you would bring down that eagle. The sportsman replied that he would if he only had some feathers to put into his arrow. So the eagle pulled one out of his wing. The arrow was shot but didn't quite reach the rival eagle. It was flying too high. The envious eagle pulled out more feathers and more feathers and more feathers and kept pulling them out until he lost so many that he couldn't fly. And then the sportsman turned around and killed him. And here's what Moody says, my friend, if you are jealous, the only man you can hurt is yourself. Wow. When we look at Saul and his relationship with David, I want to bring this home and consider seven steps of jealousy. You could call this a seven-step progression of jealousy or seven steps. Notice with me on the screen that jealousy begins with usually a divisive circumstance. And so there's a circumstance that causes Saul to become jealous of David. In their case, it was a song. It was a lyric of a song. But listen, it can be any number of things between two people. It can happen when two men are business partners and something causes, maybe a decision causes them to split. This circumstance can happen in friendships. It happens in churches. It happens in Christian schools. It happens in leadership. It happens in families. And it even happens in marriages. And right here, the divisive circumstance, the next step is where everything goes downhill. There is what uh, scripture calls a bitter root. This bitter root springs up. And so rather than believing the best in people or considering others better than yourselves, you know, kind of the two gospel things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to prefer others. We're supposed to believe the best. Um, instead, we allow anger and rivalry to produce a bitter root in our heart. And, and that's all that it takes. Because then it leads to two attitudes and two actions. Notice with me, there's two attitudes, a desire for destruction and a disdain for success. And, and so this attitude uh, begins to fester in our heart. 
where uh, we hate to see that that person's doing well and we secretly hope that their life will fall apart. So we hate to see them as the starter in the game and we secretly hope that they sprain their ankle. We hate to see them happy in their marriage, so we secretly hope that maybe privately they're actually miserable. Oh, they're having trouble in their marriage. Good, that's a good thing. We can't stand to see that one guy successful in his business, so we fantasize about them losing everything. You see, not only are these two attitudes at place, but the next two actions, these wicked actions are in force. Like Saul, we can, number five, distance ourselves from the relationship where we have a removal from proximity, we get away from them, or we begin to engineer circumstances to push that person away. And in the worst of sinful scenarios, some have even crafted their situation, their scenario, in such a way that a trap is set for that person to fall. Some have even sought the life of someone that they're jealous of. Song of Solomon 8.6 tells us, For love is as strong as death, and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. You see, what jealousy does is it leads to this last idea on the screen of those seven, which is a perpetual enmity between two people that will never end until the jealous person mortifies their sin and submits all of it to a holy, just, and righteous God who doesn't wink at this sort of hidden wickedness. Now, there's three passages in particular that I want to highlight that will help remedy a jealous heart. And I'm, I'm teaching this to the church. This is not a message for unbelievers. This is for believers because this is something that plagues even believers. So here's what the scripture would tell us. Jot these verses down or take a picture. The first is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews encourages the church that was meeting together, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, the writer of Hebrews tells us we're to be ambassadors of the grace of God. And in a church community, one person's bitterness can spread like leaven to many others. So we need to make sure everyone who's a shoreliner does not miss the grace of God. Second verse I want you to jot down is Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Paul tells the church in Ephesus who uh, had their doctrine down, and yet Jesus would tell them 30 years after being established, you've left your first love. And so Paul maybe picked up on that, said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Notice from this verse, we're to let unforgiveness go, including the practical ways that this fleshes out in our lives. So for some, it's bitterness internally. For others, it's wrath verbally and emotionally. For many, it's clamor, which sounds like a lot of loud noise for all to hear. Whereas for others, it's quiet slander that spreads just from person to person. But all of this malice, he says, is to be put away from us. And as followers of Christ, we're to have kind, tender-hearted forgiveness for one another. And the reason we do this is not because we're good people after all. No, it's because of what we've been forgiven uh, by a holy, just God. Can you imagine that you and I are treasonous? We're traitors against a just God. And can you imagine for a minute if God were to say, you know what? 
I actually am going to revisit your sin upon. I'm going to actually, the cross wasn't sufficient. So I'm going to withhold some forgiveness today. I'm going to withhold some grace today. Can you imagine that? Far be it. May it never be. Uh, But his grace is greater than all of our sin. So our grace for others should follow suit. Now this scenario seemed to happen to Peter, one of Jesus' first followers. And he asked Jesus about it directly. And here's that third verse, Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus. You ever done this? You ever thought this? He said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he (laughs) sins against me? Up to seven times. You could just see Peter keeping count. He's like, he reached number seven. (laughs) Is it seven? It's seven, right, Jesus? Please tell me it's seven. But Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven, which I'm pretty sure is a number Jesus didn't want you to try to calculate. In other words, forgiveness should be uh, just... Endless. It's an endless amount of forgiveness. And listen, this is only possible in light of our own sins being forgiven at the cross. So, Christian, are you struggling with a jealous heart? Maybe in your marriage there's been something that's brought division. There's jealousy there. Listen, that jealousy of seeking someone else's downfall is only going to destroy you. And so I want to challenge you from the word of God uh, to... Let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you. So secondly, as we apply this passage and we remember that Jesus is a true and better David, I think it's important uh, to point out this second point. And that is that number two, the apex result of the fall is a desire for self-glory. Does that make sense? So the fall of man was a great and tragic event that reshaped all of human history. And yet the, I could say maybe the apex of that, the worst part of that is a desire for self-glory. Saul was receiving a little bit of glory as the women paraded and praised his accomplishments. Yeah, he's killed thousands. But see, David's glory was greater. And that competition is what led Saul to his eventual demise. We weren't designed to receive the glory, but we were designed to extend God's glory because he alone is glorious. So when we look back at the fall, when the serpent tempted Eve, it was with this notion that she and her husband were being kept from something glorious. The literal words of Satan were, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Indeed, when Adam and Eve observed that that fruit was able to make them wise, their restraint out of reverence for God's command was overridden. And it was overridden by their desire, not just to eat and taste good fruit, but it was fruit that kept them. That, that restriction is keeping me from the wisdom that God has. It's keeping me from glory. And so they consume the fruit out of a desire for self-glory. Even though by grace through faith we've been regenerated by the Spirit of God and we're new creations, we as Christ followers still have the remnants of our corrupt nature. And until we lay this sinful body into the earth, we're going to be plagued by the flesh. And we're going to be plagued also by a desire to exalt ourselves above God. And that desire is going to continue to haunt us until we breathe our last. Every day that you and I live on planet earth is a battle between self-glory and God's glory. I like what Paul Tripp said. He said it best. He said this, the original design was for human beings to live in a glorious world and exist in perfect relational harmony with a glorious God. 
But sin corrupted the original design. And now you and I have this desire to live for ourselves. Instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We demand to be in the center of our world. We take credit for what only God could produce. He goes on to say, we want to be sovereign. We want others to worship us. We establish our own kingdom and we punish those who break our laws. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we don't deserve and we complain when we don't get whatever it is that we want. It's a glory disaster. And here's what he goes on to say, not to leave us on that note. He says, our only hope is for the God of glory to invade our lives and rescue us. But not rescue us from culture or media or government. No, he needs us to rescue us from us. This is why Jesus came to earth, lived righteously on our behalf, died for our dysfunction, then rose again conquering sin and death. In amazing grace, Jesus willingly came on a glory rescue mission. And because he did, there's hope for us. When we admit to our glory thievery and when we cry out for help for our dysfunction, we can finally be free from the never satisfying quest for worldly glory and live forever in the light of the satisfying glory of God. Wow. As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward to close us in song. And go ahead and close your Bible, scripture journals. Get settled for a minute. See, church, Jesus is always going to cause either our abhorrence or he's going to cause our adoration. And in our text, David's name was highly esteemed, even above the name of Saul. And that brought out of Saul hatred and rejection. You and I aren't David. You and I are more like Saul. Like Saul, we live our lives in constant rivalry against God's glory, against God's renown. And we desire to seek our own fame and our own recognition and put ourselves on the throne. And so we rage against anyone or anything that threatens our own luxury. And we fail to truly understand that only his name is to be highly esteemed. We forget Jesus came and died humbly not to bolster the pride of life, but to put an end to it. And so this morning, as we confront our own vainglorious honor with the reality of the cross, that'll either cause us to reject and abhor Jesus or to fear, adore, and worship him. So to bring it home, are you reacting like Saul or like Jonathan? We're either going to have great reproach or great respect for the soon coming king. De Graff said this, this deed on Jonathan's part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ who is truly Israel's king. My desire is that we'd be like Jonathan, that our soul would be knit to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love him, we'd lay ourselves bare before him, that we would offer up our very lives for his service and defer to his rule and reign, even as we wave the white flag of our own agendas and the empty praise of men. Christ alone is truly the man after God's own heart. Amen. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these truths. Lord, we so often fight against the glory of God and desire to extend our own glory. In jealous rage, Lord, we can bring others down so that our name will be exalted. Our name will be promoted. Our agendas will be furthered. Lord, forgive us. 
You've created us on purpose, for a purpose, to extend your glory. And so, Lord, may we live our lives in light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, if there's areas in our life that run counter, that run against extending your glory, would you bring those things to mind and let us lay them down at the altar and repent and trust that you are greater. And so, Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, are enough that what you did at Calvary was enough to cover our sin, that, Father, you're not going to revisit your wrath upon us. What Christ has done is sufficient, and the scriptures are sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. So we look to you today, Lord. I pray, rob us this morning of our glory. Forgive us. Lord, fill us afresh with the desire to see your glory extend to the nations. And we love you and we thank you. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.